All right. Hey, good morning, guys. Thank you, John. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we're glad that you're here. If you're not new, we're always glad that you're here. Um, wow, I'm so thankful. Uh, I feel like we could just read our text and be done. Some of you would be excited about that after uh, powerful worship um, led by our, our high school senior, uh, Maddie McKinnon. So thank you, Maddie, Nolan, Rachel, the team. So grateful for you. Um, if you're just joining us uh, this morning, we've been in a series this fall. Every fall we take at least a few weeks and uh, preach through what we call our annual priority. And this is kind of an area that we as, uh, as elders get away every year and we pray for our church and we kind of ask God, God, what are, you, what are you doing among us and around us, in us? What do you want to do through us? And um, so we're calling this the year of spiritual formation. We define spiritual formation as uh, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. So we just spent the last couple weeks, you know, I encourage you, if you haven't listened to them, to go back and listen to those messages, unpacking uh, what it means to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world in such a way that leads to life and love and wholeness in the world around us. And so uh, we're going to shift this week, and I want to throw this diagram up again because we mentioned this in the, in the sermon on becoming like Jesus um, this is, this is uh, kind of a shift or a little pivot point in our vision series this week from the why of spiritual formation and the what of spiritual formation to how, right? That's the question we kind of all begin to ask as we have this vision in front of us is, is right, how do we do that, right? Like, uh, we, we love the why, we, we understand the what, but, but how? And so we unpacked this a few weeks ago and we begin to talk about this, and this is really what we're going to key in on for the next several weeks up until Advent, really, at the end of November, beginning of December, we said that when Jesus uh, enters into a person's life, he comes into the deepest core of our being, right? Augustine says, uh, the early church father, God is in me deeper than I am in me. God comes in me, and he begins to rearrange, to reorder my sense of self, and, and then out of that transformation that's happening in me, then that begins to flow out and to impact every arena of my life, and so it begins to uh, change the way I look at my relationships. God places me in a family in the church, and we'll talk about what it looks like to do this together with other people. And, and, and God gives me a renewed body. He begins to change and transform and heal uh, memories from the past. He begins to change the way I think, the way I feel, uh, my desires, right? Like all of those things that are part of what it means to live uh, in this beautiful, and not for me, but for us, most of you, beautiful and broken bodies. How is God bringing about transformation? So we're going to talk about what it looks like here in a few weeks to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your whole person being renewed over a long period of time. And so we're going to talk about the tension in our last message on what it looks like, as Paul says in Corinthians, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next right? It doesn't all happen at one time. Uh, this isn't like the matrix God downloads transformation software, and then all of a sudden we're just completely different and we're renewed, right? It's a process and it involves breakthrough, and it's a both and, and we got to pay attention to that tension. Uh, and then practices, right? There are spiritual 11 practices that we are talking through. We've talked through this fall, and we're going to come back starting in January which we're excited about with our very first practice. We're going to do a little bit of a double-click hyperlink and get deeper into the practices, starting with the one that we were worst at on our health survey when we did it last fall, uh, Sabbath, right, rest. So we're going to spend the entire month of January um, do, uh, talking about something that's probably terrifying uh, for most of you in this room, a Sabbath way of life, silence, solitude, unplugging, right, a, a, a different way of being in the world rooted in uh, a vision of rest, right? Not in productivity, but rest. 
So uh, that's what we've been talking about. We're shifting gears this week to the, why, to the, to the how. And I, and I want to start off with, um, before we jump into this text, uh, just a little bit of a statement and assumption that we're making here in this process. Um, discipleship or spiritual formation is a partnership with God. It's a partnership between God uh, and us. And we're going to look at the two sides of this partnership. Now, the partnership is not equal, right? If you're a business partner, we're not talking about the same thing, okay? Not even close to being equal, right? It's kind of like uh, my kids, uh, they'll oftentimes want to want to cook dinner with dad or mom, right? And so they're like, let me help, which usually means let me make a big mess, and t- it takes twice as long. Uh, and so as a parent, my kids help uh, uh, cook the meal, but I am the chef, right? I am the chef. I am buying the products. I am uh, putting together the recipe. I am securing the resources, right? Ultimately, I am the one preparing the meal, and my kids are invited to participate, to add, to, to, to you know, become little mini-chefs. That's the heart of what we're talking about in this partnership with God. Discipleship is both God and us collaborating together, right, to bring about a new way of being in the world, right? Philippians 2, Paul says it like this. He kind of minds this tension. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Three times he mentions work. He says, you have a work to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but as you work, remember, it's ultimately God who is working in you to bring about these things for his delight and his pleasure, right? And where we go wrong oftentimes in formation is when we try to pursue one without the other, right? It's like these weird slogans, like I didn't grow up in the church, but I became a Christian as a teenager, and people would always say like these weird things like, God is my co-pilot, you know, like let go and let God, okay, as if like we have no part to play, and it's like, no, it's, it's both, right? God is working, and we are working, right? How do we reconcile uh, that tension? Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher a long time ago in London, said, I, I generally don't get in the habit of trying to reconcile friends, right? These two things are not mutually exclusive. They are overlapping and, overlapping and complementary realities. And so discipleship is a partnership with God. God is working in us, and he is calling us to work out what he is working in us. So we could say it like this, transformation is both a gift and it's grit, right? It is a gift from God and it is gritty. It involves work and training and all the things that we've talked about. Now, this week and and for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the gift side, right? We're going to talk about the gift side of the equation, right? What does it look like for God to be at work in us? What is God doing to guarantee and secure our transformation and change ultimately and eternally. And then we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about our role in this. We're going to talk about the grit that's required to experience transformation. But here in this passage, we have a breathtaking account of the gift. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to invite you to possibly one of the most majestic passages in the Bible, right? As I was praying over what text, actually changed my text last week, Um, as I was preparing for this, I I just kept being drawn back to this passage, which is kind of like the Mount Everest of transformation from God's standpoint, right? Ephesians chapter one, we taught through the book of Ephesians a couple years ago. I mean, just breathtaking, right? It's the Mount Everest. And and, and I want to warn you, like, um, this is going to feel like scaling Mount Everest in your underwear, okay? 
Uh, it should not be done lightly. It might involve some nosebleeds. It might involve some pain because, this, I mean, to get, get up this high so quickly to see what God's doing can be disorienting, right? And, and so I want you just to hang with me, but hear what the Apostle Paul's inviting us to see about transformation. Start in chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. If you, if you own a Bible, turn there. If you don't, there should be a blue and white copy around you, or you can download it real quickly on your, on your um, device. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I want to encourage you, circle that word blessing, underline, highlight that word blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us, bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news, and believed in him, trusted in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. An amazing passage. What I love about this passage is this is not Paul writing to a bunch of squeaky clean, squeaky clean religious people, right? A bunch of buttoned up, like, you know, uh, like Christian concert going, you know, went to a Christian university, again, no offense, went to a Christian university, went to a Christian school growing up. I've been a Christian as long as I've been alive, right? This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, right? These are a group of people in a particular historical time and place, just like you and I. Ephesus, what I love about this is there's so many parallels um, between Ephesus and, and our day. Ephesus was a strategic urban center, Right? It was the third largest city in, uh, it, it was the capital of the Asian province of Rome, the, largest, the third largest Roman city, about 250,000 people, which at that time would have been, again, massive, massive urban metropolitan area. It was a port city, so think of this like L.A., right? New York, Boston, this is L.A., and all that comes, no offense if you're West Coast, all that comes along with that, right? Funky religion, spirituality, just, it's just a different kind of place, right? Um, it was this confluence of commercialism and political activity and cult spirituality all 
uh, woven into one, the the seventh ancient wonder of the world, the temple of uh, Artemis or Diana was located there. You had the cult, uh, fertility cult, and all kinds of temple prostitution that was happening there. Uh, There was black magic. I mean, these basically are, are like sexy witches, like sex-obsessed witches, right? Like that's who Paul's writing to, and they had a lot of money, right, to, to boot, right? So, and yet what we see, if you want to go back and read the origin story, it is fascinating to read Acts chapter 19, the story of transformation. When the gospel comes to the city, when the apostle Paul comes into this strategic urban center, everything flips, right? Everything flips. People are transformed. The city is transformed. There is confession of sin. There is the public divulging of witchcraft uh, practices. There's a big book burning. They basically take all their magical scrolls and they burn them out in the public square. People estimate that would have been about an eight to $10 million book burning that happens right out in in, in a public space. Uh, And then it literally says there's a socioeconomic shift. The gospel has such an impact that there's cultural and social renewal. They start to shut down the temple prostitution. They start to shut down the payday loan centers. They start to shut down sex trafficking, right? That's what's happening in Ephesus. And Paul says to you, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is Paul expanding our horizon, right? Expanding the horizon of transformation to a Trinitarian horizon, a Trinitarian reality. He's getting the focus off of us, and and it feels weird, right? Like I was talking to one of our elders this week. He said, reading this passage is like watching the, the, the show Stranger Things, right? Like it's like you're being transported to this alternate reality that, that seems too Weird and yet good to be true. This work of God, right? Ephesians 3, 1 through 14, in the Greek in which it was written, is one long sentence. It is the longest run-on sentence in the entire New Testament. 201 words, verbs, adjectives, pronouns. It is effusive, almost like binge, like Paul is binging on the grace of God. And this is just what comes pouring out of him. It is a song. It is a poem. It is a guy who has been gripped by the reality of God and can't help but just basically break out into song. It's like you when, you know, whatever your jam is, Bieber or, uh, you know, whatever comes on the radio, uh, you know, I, I don't know what your thing is, Taylor Swift, maybe it's gospel music and it's Aretha Franklin. I, I don't know what that thing is for you. When, the, when that thing happens in your car and you're all alone and you just start to sing like nobody's around, that's, that's, and you look ridiculous when you pull up next to a stoplight and somebody outs you, right? Like just look over and see you right in the, at the top of the pitch. We're, we're kind of getting a peek on Paul at the stoplight singing at the top of his lungs. Amazing. He just said in verse 2, grace and peace. Two of Paul's favorite words from, the God, our God and Father, or from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My man Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and has such a way with words, says like this in his introduction to Ephesians. Paul is playful, extravagant, and totally engaging as he tells us what is going on in this God-created, Christ-saved, spirit-blessed world into which we have been born 
and are now growing up. This is no small, cramped world, he says. And that's, that's our horizon normally. We live in this small world and we feel trapped. We feel like we're in a prison sometimes when it comes to possibilities of change. Paul says, uh, Eugene says, this is no small, cramped world in which we live from hand to mouth. The horizons are vast. The heavens are high. The oceans are deep. We have elbow room to spare. Paul wants to get our eyes off of ourselves, right? Get our eyes off of ourselves. Paul is inviting us to see that change and transformation is not something that starts with us. It is not a self-improvement thing. It is not a self-discovery thing primarily. Change always begins and ends with God. In the beginning, God. Paul's taking us back to the beginning and saying, in the beginning of transformation, God. In the middle of transformation, guess what? God. At the end of transformation, guess what? God. God behind me. As the old Irish prayer goes, God in me. God in front of me. Right? Everywhere is God. This should be an encouragement to you. Get your eyes off yourself, right? This is not about you. This is about something that the God of heaven, the God of eternity has committed himself to. He will bring about, he says in, Paul says in Philippians 1, what God started, he will bring to completion. God has yet to start something that he can't finish. He never writes a check that his power can't cash. Be encouraged. That's the whole point here, right? Change begins, it ends with God. We need a power from outside of ourselves to change us. We don't have what it takes. When I was six years old, my family used to go to Myrtle Beach every summer. And uh, it's the closest beach to Louisville. That's where we went. And I'll never forget, uh, I was swimming one day, and if you uh, spend much time in the ocean, some of us here in the middle of America don't, but Middle Earth, we don't, but... Um, if you spend time at the ocean, you know that there are strong currents, right? There's an undertow that can just sweep you out. And, and, and just like that, uh, as a child, you can be swept out and, and drowned very easily. And I remember one day swimming out, and the undertow was bad, and I was uh, six. My sister would have been a baby, and I didn't have any other siblings, so I was out there as often was alone, just trying to figure out the ocean. And, and I got caught in an undertow, and, and I was struggling. You know, the worst thing you can do in an undertow is struggle. You're supposed to actually, I think, swim sideways or something like that. I don't know. I'm not a swimmer. But um, I know that I didn't do the right thing. At six, I start thrashing, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I'm going to die. Like, I was terrified. I was gripped by fear, and my body began to freeze up, and I couldn't hardly catch a breath. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my dad, I, I, don't, I didn't see him coming. I don't know what happened. My dad's not like this big buff dude. He's not a CrossFitter. I mean, he just appears as if he's that lifeguard on that one show that you guys all know I'm talking about. And he just pops up out of nowhere, and he grabs me and hurls me forward, and I ride a wave in to safety. And my dad literally saved my life. That's kind of what Paul's saying here to us. You are the one that's caught in the undertow of life. Unable to do for yourself even the most basic things that bring about transformation in your own effort. God is a loving Father who jumps in and with all of his power provides something that we cannot provide for ourselves. And he pushes us back to shore. 
That's the reality. So I want us to see, just for a few minutes here, what God is doing. I want to outline some of what God is doing. So I want to ask three questions here. What has God done for us? Um, What has God exactly done for us to bring about transformation? How does that blessing change us? And then how do we get into it? How do we participate in it? So let me just go through this. And again, we're skipping rocks, right? We don't have time to do a deep dive into this. I want to skip some rocks here and just lay out some of the contours of what God is doing and how that ought to give you assurance and comfort as you uh, pursue transformation, practicing the way of Jesus for the life of the world. The first thing we see here is the Father's purpose. The Father's purpose, the Father's plan. Paul says, blessed. And you notice a couple verbs here that frame up the Father's plan. Blessed, chosen, adopted. That's what God is doing. That's what God has been doing since the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world was laid. That's what God is doing, and that's what God will be doing. So let's look at these in succession. God blesses us right? God is the kind of father who's generous. Now, I say that because many of us, when we think of God, don't think of a generous God. We think of a stingy, miserly accountant or a a, a police officer. No offense if that's your vocation, but that's kind of how we view God, right? God is a God to be feared. God's up there keeping some kind of a score, and if I don't walk this narrow line, he's going to just like strike me dead with a thunderbolt like some kind of Zeus or give me cancer or do something really horrible to me. That's how we oftentimes think of God. And yet, the vision Paul gives us here, he says, he's a, he, he wants to bless you. And it's interesting here in the language uh, that Paul uses, he talks about God lavishing blessing on us. That's one of Paul's favorite words whenever he talks about grace. It's abundant, right? It's a lot. Paul does, uh, God does more than we could ever ask or imagine or think. He uses a word here that's only found, I think, here in Ephesians, grace, to use it as a verb, Uh, Some people would say bestowed. Uh, Eugene Peterson prefers the word drenched. We are drenched and saturated and immersed in the blessing of God. And notice, he says, blessed be God, who has then blessed us in Christ. Blessing is is a descriptor of God. The one who is blessed, who is the definition of blessing, blesses us. In other words, what God does comes out of who God is. He can't help but be a blessing because he himself is blessed. And out of that blessing, he shares with us all spiritual blessings, right? Nothing has he withheld from us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And again, lest you think of heavenly as some kind of, you know, dimension out there far, far away. Remember in the, uh, when we did the Sermon on the Mount, the word heavenly and the heavens means an alternate dimension that is breaking into now right? It is, it is to say the first heaven is right here. The heavenlies are closer than the air that you breathe and the, the, the air around your skin. He's saying God is taking all the blessings of heaven and bringing them to earth. He blesses us. He chooses us, right? He has chosen us. He has predestined us. He has pre-loved us. He has a, a plan for our lives. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, wholeness and holiness. That's what Christ and God is after for us. He chose us. He predestined us according to his purpose, according to his plan, right? This is all about intentionality, 
right? God has been so intentional in orchestrating the events of my life and the events of your life to bring the blessings of heaven towards you, right? Before you did anything, before you breathed your first breath, before you closed your first deal, before you passed or failed your boards, before you finished school, before you did anything at all, God knew you. God loved you. Not because you were lovable, but because he wanted to make you lovable. I love Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to, six to 7. I think we have this on a slide. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. John 15, 16, Jesus likewise says this to his first disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, people get all weird about this passage, and it becomes something that divides churches and denominations. Well, if I'm predestined, does that mean I'm a robot? And all these philosophical things that we get into. Now, there's a time and a place to talk about that, but notice Paul does not subject these statements to any sort of human speculation. This is about divine revelation, and it is given not to become some kind of a, a little, uh, you know, uh, syllogism that we break down and try to figure out, it's given as a warm blanket for the soul in the midst of uh, all the things that are happening in the church at Ephesus. And if you know the story at the church of Ephesus, they are bitterly divided, right? Sexism, racism, classism, that is all happening in the book of Ephesians. And what Paul says is the only way any of that division becomes unified is if God is doing something that you can't do anything about. If God, is, if God is pre-knowing you and pre-loving you and ordaining the circumstances of your life, that is the only confidence that you have that these things will eventually be overcome. So this is not this dry doctrine uh, that we're supposed to just like try to analyze and figure out. Paul's saying, rest in this. I love Russell Moore, a friend of mine, says it like this. God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God isn't treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. God was looking for us. God rejoices in us. God has a plan for you purpose things to happen in your life. Now think about it. Regardless of what you think about this doctrine and whether or not it freaks you out, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? There's only two options. The alternative to God's plan is um, I've got to have a plan or no plan. I don't like either one of those options, right? No plan is not good. And I know what happens with my plans, right? Like, I often make plans. I don't know if you're like this. Some of you guys, maybe especially, you make a plan and then you don't have the resources to pull it off. And it sounds like an awesome plan. Like, the first time we came to Indianapolis to visit Indy 2006 with 
our oldest, James, who was like uh, 15 months old. I had a plan to show my wife the city. We actually thought about planting a church back in 2006 in Indy, and we came to scope the city out. And I had this plan. I was going to wine and dine my wife and show her around the city and tell her how amazing Indianapolis was, you know, kind of exaggerating a little bit as a kid who grew up in the South, but whatever. Um, and so I brought her here, and, and my plan just fell apart, right? Like, um, we got pulled over by the cops twice. I got a ticket. Um, our car broke down. Our hotel was a nightmare on IUPUI's campus. I don't know why I thought that was good. We ended up eating dinner at Steak and Shake. Um, and my, literally, by the end of the first night, my wife's like, can we go? Like, it is so obvious God does not want us here, and you certainly don't know how to plan anything, right? I mean, this is like our second year of marriage. And that's often how it goes. Like, our plans, we have a vision for something, but we lack the resources. God has a vision for something, and he never lacks the resources to make it happen. He always accomplishes his purposes for us. Isn't that cool to think about that? God is arranging the circumstances of your life so that you're here this morning, so that you're in the relationships that you're in, so that you grew up in the family that you grew up in, so that your life story would be merged with the story of God and become a symphony, would become an orchestra of praise. To God. That is astounding. He's chosen you. He's adopted you, right? Which in the ancient world just meant to be brought into an inheritance. They didn't adopt people in the ancient world to just raise them up in their family. Usually you'd have a wealthy patron who didn't have an heir, and they would bring someone into their family and adopt them and then bestow all the inheritance and all the privileges and rights appertaining thereto to the heir, right? This is uh, language, the language of adoption in the Bible, which is so thick and rich in the New Testament, is all about having a relationship with our Father, right? It's all about being brought into an intimate relationship, being brought home, right? The idea is that we are living in exile away, just like the prodigal son, away from our Father's home, and God has brought us back. I love the story of Henri Nouwen. Henri Nouwen was a successful professor at uh, Harvard. And uh, in a deep season of loneliness and personal devastation, he came across Rembrandt's painting, right, the, of the prodigal son. And I actually forgot to throw it up here on the screen. You can look it up later. But he came across this painting while he was visiting a friend at L'Arche, a community for mentally handicapped folks um, over in France. And he encountered this painting and he said, all of a sudden, God did something, and looking at this painting for the first time, this painting came to life to me, came to life to me, and met me in a place of deep loneliness, and I so identified with the prodigal son who had left his home and yet longed to come home to his father. Here's what he writes about this experience and encountering this painting. Now it says, I was indeed the son exhausted from long travels. I wanted to be embraced. I was looking for a home where I could feel safe. The son come home was all I was and all that I wanted to be. For so long, I had been going from place to place, confronting, beseeching, admonishing, consoling. Now I desired only to rest safely in a place where I could feel a sense of belonging, a place where I could feel at home. Two years later, he would resign his post at Harvard and go help launch another large community in Toronto. And he spent really the majority of the, the remainder of his life pouring himself out for the mentally disabled in this community. He felt home. That's what God is doing. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has blessed us. Look secondly, just quickly here, at the son's passion. So the father is doing these things. The son 
has a passion, right? The root word of passion is not, I feel awesome about something, this is cool, and I want to do it for a living. Uh, The root word of uh, passion is suffering, to suffer, right? The passion of the Christ. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is redeeming us. We see two things, redemption and gathering together. And I just want to hit these quickly here, but he says, in him we have, through his blood, um, we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Redemption is the idea of being purchased back, bought out of slavery. We are slaves to our sin. We are slaves. We, we place our hope and our trust in everything but God, and it becomes a master, right? And it's a cruel master. He says Jesus has come through his life, his death, his resurrection to free us, to buy us out of that slavery, to lay his life down, a substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our sins. We know the strongest kind of love is sacrificial love, right? If you read the Harry Potter series, I took my son to Harry Potter World this summer when he turned 12, which was awesome. And uh, one of my favorite books in the series, I think, is The Sorcerer's Stone, if you're British, The Philosopher's Stone. Um, And at the very end of that first novel, remember the bad guy tries to grab Harry Potter and he he burns up, right? And, And he asks later, why couldn't the evil man touch me? And Dumbledore says, because your mother died for you. Your mother gave her life to save you. And when someone experiences love like that, it puts a power on you that no evil can deal with. That is the power of sacrificial love. Jesus stood in our place, died, right? And so everything, Romans 6, we are united with him in his death, and we are united with him in his resurrection. In other words, everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of me and becomes true of you, right? Jesus' death is my death. Jesus' life becomes my life. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection. That's the good news of redemption. And then he's gathering all of that together, not just doing it with us, right? The renewal of all things, not just with me, but he's doing it with the whole world. He's gathering together everything, past, present, and future, bringing it all together, and one day he's going to make everything new. That's what Jesus does. And then the Spirit of God is involved, finally, right? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit of God himself comes into you. God doesn't just give you gifts. He gives you himself. Isn't that cool? God gives you himself. The Holy Spirit, we're going to do a whole series on this uh, in the spring. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence, dwelling in us, living in us, sealing us, right, so that nobody can take us out of the Father's hand. Nobody can separate us, as Paul says in Romans 8, from God's love, right? We are sealed in, hermetically sealed into the plan of God, safe in the plan of God, not only now, but into eternity, right? We are promised. We are given a guarantee, which is a commercial word for a down payment, right? God has made a down payment. He has made the first installment in your eternal salvation in giving you the Holy Spirit, right? John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, a paraclete, literally, a parakletos, a helper, one who comes alongside you in this work of redemption, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor 
knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be with you. This is the work of God in salvation. So what does that mean then for us? How does this change us? As we get ready to prepare for communion, I want you to think about that. Because these are not abstract theological truths that are, you know, like the beginning of Star Wars movies out there in a galaxy far, far away. These are present realities, present blessings that God is offering to us. He is inviting us to experience these right here and right now in the present, right? The down payment of what he's going to bring in fullness one day, right? So how does this change us? How do we experience transformation because of these truths? What God is doing in blessing us is removing the primary obstacle to transformation. The resistance is strong, right? Like we are, to use a word from Star Wars, part of the resistance, right? We are the problem. We are the enemies of our own transformation. What's the problem, right? It's not your job, primarily. It's not where you went to school, primarily. It's not where you grew up, primarily. It's not your marriage, primarily, It's not your children primarily. It's not your socioeconomic status primarily. What is the fundamental issue keeping us from transformation? It's mistrust. Primarily, I would say, not just mistrust, but misapplied trust. Trusting in the wrong things, right? We are suspicious and cynical creatures, aren't we? I mean, we do not trust the heart of God. And this has been going on since the garden, right? Think about our first parents. We've, we've come by this honestly. It's in our DNA, right? It's in our bloodstream, right? Has God really said? Did God really say? And the devil keeps tempting and saying, no, you know, God's holding out on you, right? And so we have like little kind of petulant children, like my kids, I love them. But every time I lay down an instruction, it's always met with, for real, are you serious? And like we are as adults, we kind of laugh, but we're doing the same thing with God. Are you serious? Are you serious when it comes to sexuality? Are you serious when it comes to money? Are you serious when it comes to the way we're supposed to love people, especially our enemies? Are you for real? I mean, like, like my daughter, who I've tried to keep out of our street, we live on Capitol, for years has resisted me at every point as if I'm like, you know, putting her in a prison when I say don't run out into the street or you're going to end up like one of those squirrels, right? Gut, like inside, you're going to be outside in, right? And she's like, oh, and she stomps and she's so mad at me. And I'm like, I'm just trying to be a good parent. I don't know what else to do. Keep you out of the street, right? Don't let you watch whatever you want to watch. Don't let you go wherever you want to go. Don't let you think whatever you want to think. That's the job of a good parent. But the heart of human beings is we don't trust or we trust in the wrong thing we trust in ourselves we trust in other people to secure what only god can secure for us and our fundamental issue is one of trust now some of us have very good reasons to not trust we've been victimized we have been oppressed so it's something in us and it's also things that happen to us it's part of our story it creates feelings of shame It creates feelings of fear. It creates feelings of guilt. Like all of those things are always operating in the background of our hearts and lives. And they create distance. This is what the Bible calls alienation from God. God, I don't know if you can trust you. Where were you when I was being assaulted? Where were you when I was miscarrying? Where were you when I was struggling with infertility? Where were you when I got dumped, when I was divorced? Where were you when I didn't get that job? 
where were you when I didn't get into that college? God, where are you as I'm facing down one of the most serious illnesses in my life, possibly even facing death? You see, like, how all of that operates to create an environment of mistrust between us and God. And what God is promising here is, I've got this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He will work everything towards his ultimate purposes. He is actively working right now, even when you can't see him, to heal you of your mistrust, to move us from a place of shame to a place of acceptance, right? Like this whole passage is about in your weakness, in your failure, God doesn't step back from you, God moves towards you, right? In your sense of inadequacy, in your sense of failure, in your sense of weakness, God says, no, no, come here, I want you, right? I have planned for this, I'm not surprised by this, I want you, you belong, you are accepted despite your sin and failure and weakness, you are in, not because of anything you've done, but because, as he says 11 times, I've put you in Christ. I've put you in him, in that sphere where I am pouring out my blessing, and now nothing can separate you. You are accepted. He moves us from fear to faith, right? From fear to love, as John says, perfect love casts out fear. We no longer have to be afraid, as we sang about, because God in Christ is for us, and he is moving in our name in our story towards our future. And then finally, he's moving us from guilt to forgiveness, which is one of our greatest needs as human beings, to be forgiven of our sins, to be forgiven of our trespasses, to have the slate wiped clean and to have freedom, right? We sang about that. He who has the Son has life, right? In him is freedom. That's what God is doing in Christ. That's what God has been doing. That's what he is doing. So what is your invitation today, right? As we come to communion, like the question is, how do I get into this? How do I get into this? This sounds amazing. Sounds too good to be true, but it sounds amazing. How do I get into this? 11 times, Paul says, in Christ, and 11 times he uses pronouns matching in Christ like us, we, and ours, Right? So this is not like, this is what God's doing in some distant place. He's saying, this is what God wants to do with you right now, right here, in this place, in the midst of your brokenness, in your story. God wants you to be a participant, not a spectator, in this work of transformation. So what do you do? Surrender. You do nothing. You receive. You surrender, right? It's the whole point of Ephesians, right? It's not about striving to earn God's love. It is, no, God has already chosen from before the foundation of the world to set his love on you. You must surrender. You must be, to use a word from Brene Brown, vulnerable. You must be open. You must have the courage to know that there's nothing you can do and to simply surrender to his love. A vulnerability, Paul says in in chapter 3, that goes beyond belief. It's not less than belief, but it is so much more. It is not thinking the right things about God. It is thinking and feeling and experiencing the reality of God. Pray that you would know the height, depth, width of his love for you in Christ Jesus, a love that surpasses all knowledge. Surrender and praise, right? Like, how do you know if you're in? You praise, That's the whole point. He says over and over again, to the praise of his grace, you can sing, right? If you're a performer, you can't praise. 
because you're always worrying about your performance. Did I do it right? Did I say enough prayers? Did I go to church enough? Did I do enough Bible studies? Have I done the right thing? And Paul says, you're asking the wrong question. Can you praise? Praise your way into transformation, Paul says. You don't work your way in. You don't perform your way in. You do what is most natural to you when you are captivated by something, right? You're captivated by Butler. You go to the arena and you go nuts. You're captivated by a new restaurant. You sing about it and you talk about it and you're annoying for like six months while you're in cage stage, you know? Like whatever you care most deeply about, the universe, C.S. Lewis says, rings with praise. We're always praising that which captures our imagination. Let me close with these words from my man, John Coltrane. His gospel a love supreme. This is like jazz, right? This is, that's what it means to like follow Jesus. It is jazz. John Coltrane, at the end of his album, he, 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 he plays it. He doesn't even say it. He plays it if you listen to A Love Supreme. But this is his kind of poem of thanks and praise to God. Here's what he says in, at the end of A Love Supreme. Elation, elegance, exaltation, all from God. Thank you, God. That's all that he could say about transformation. From God, to God, for God, with God, forever. That is God's work of transformation. It is a gift. And you are being invited this morning to surrender, receive that gift, and live from that gift. We have communion here at the front and at the back. The way we practice that here at Soma, we take a piece of the bread, we tear it off, and we dip it into the cup. As we do that, we're we're being reminded that God is for us and that he's with us. And that only by being united with him by faith can we get into this reality, right? That is the invitation. Anyone, whosoever will, may come. As you come, examine yourself. Ask yourself, is that really true of me? Am I really blessing God here? Is this just a religious performance, right, where I'm going because everybody's looking at me and I don't want to be awkward and weird, right? Like that is, that's not the reason to come. The reason to come is I want to praise him, right? I want to praise him as I take this bread. I'm being reminded that his body was broken for me. As I take this cup, I'm being reminded that his blood was shed for me, and I want to make that the soundtrack and the anthem of my life. That is our anthem as a church. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What an amazing grace we've received. And so if that's you, we want to invite you to come take communion with us. If not, just stay in your seat as others come. I'm going to pray for us. We'll take communion, we'll sing, and we'll send you guys out. Father, thank you for the good news of Ephesians 1.